Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Hey folks, thanks for tuning in. A couple things up front before the interview that I want to announce. My wife and I have welcomed our first child this week, which has been an incredible experience to say the least. If you hear any faint crying in the background on future episodes, it's probably my son, Towns, who's named after the great Towns Van Zandt. Second, I've got some new merch on the website. For the remainder of May, you can get 20% off on super soft tri-blend t-shirts and enamel coffee mugs by using the code LEOPOLD20 at checkout. The bugling elk illustration has been particularly popular, and that's by a fellow named Ty Halleck who does all sorts of wildlife artwork. So have a look. I'm really happy with the way everything turned out. Now, as to the interview, Juan Carlos Bravo is the conservation director of Wildlands Network. Until recently, he led their efforts in Mexico and the Borderlands region, where he advocated for improved conservation in the Sky Islands and the northern Sierra Madre Occidental regions, which we'll talk about. He advocates for wildlife connectivity in regional planning, and interprets conservation issues and approaches for U.S. audiences. We talked about Wildlands Network, their organizational history and areas of interest, their focus on landscape connectivity, the impacts of the U.S.-Mexico border wall, both ecologically and socially. We also covered the Sky Islands region, an incredible hub of biodiversity that spans the southwestern U.S. and northwestern Mexico. We also delved into a few other subjects like the power of maps and reintroduction of Mexican gray wolves. I really like meeting people like Juan Carlos through the podcast who have a range of different experiences and backgrounds, and I'm looking forward to continuing that and expanding the reach and subject matter covered here. So uh, enjoy the episode and go grab some Land Ethic merch on the website. Thanks. I'm here today with Juan Carlos Bravo, who is the conservation director of Wildlands Network, uh, newly, I guess, national conservation director, formerly director of the Mexico program. Juan Carlos, how are you, man? Hi, Dylan. I'm, I'm doing well, thank you, and excited to be here with you. Likewise. Yeah, I've been uh, digging into your work in the last few days and really, really interested in the things you guys are doing down there. Um, before we get into your work, I guess if you could just kind of introduce yourself and your background um, for the audience, that'd be great. And then maybe we can get into Wildlands Network. Sure. I'm Juan Carlos Bravo. I'm the um, Director of Conservation Programs for Wildlands Network. We are an organization that focuses in North America. And our, our mission is to reconnect, restore, and rewild North America so that life in all its diversity can thrive. Beautiful. And you grew up in Mexico, right? Uh, where are you from exactly? I'm from Mexico City, from a town called um, Xochimilco inside of Mexico City, which is the land of flowers. Oh, interesting. There are towns inside of the city? You don't just... <laughs> well, it, it used to be a town. It was obviously engulfed by ah. the growing urban uh but it but it retains some of its um some of its um cultural things that make it unique okay so, yeah yeah so we, like like a borough kind of we would call that yeah okay maybe and maybe that's a more and where are you now i'm in hermosillo sonora this is uh the traditional land of the uh tojono otam the um, the seri and the yaqui people this is in Northwest Mexico, uh, in the state of Sonora, about um, five hours south of Tucson, in a straight line uh, for your U.S. audience. Okay. How far are you? You're kind of in the middle of the desert then, right? Like, how far are you from the coast? <laughs> <laughs> I'm about an hour from the coast. I'm about uh, probably three hours from the mountains. So yeah, I'm I'm very much in the in the desert, which is more of a more of a thornbush desert, not <laughs> not not a sand dune desert. <laughs> I feel like naturalists and biologists uh, are able to find a lot more beauty in the desert than maybe other folks. Are you a biologist by training? 
I am not a biologist by training. I started out uh, communicating for a, for a Mexican nonprofit in, in the areas of design. And, and we used to publish a magazine at the time. And um, it, I was lucky enough that the organization was small to the extent that I could get involved in all kinds of things. And I realized, oh, there's conservation work going on. And, and this is a lot more exciting than talking about it. So uh, I gradually transitioned to, to that position and uh, worked for, for that organization for, for numerous years, uh, served as interim gener um, general director for a year and then uh, and then start out with Wildlands as the Mexico program lead and now as the um, director of conservation programs. That's great. Congratulations on the recent uh, promotion then. Thank you. Um, yeah. Tell me about Wildlands Network, how it was founded. I, I just kind of found out about it recently. The mission and values seem to be very similar to um, to Tompkins Conservation. In fact, your your communications colleague who reached out said that uh, there were some of the same founding people in, in you know involved with both organizations. Can you yeah. tell me about the group and and how it started? Sure. It started out with uh, a, a bunch of people who had a revolutionary idea, which was parks as they exist are not enough to preserve biodiversity. We need to connect them and create huge networks of parks throughout the land. And at the time, it was a very revolutionary idea to work on that in the early 90s. Uh, Doc Tompkins was involved in the creation of the organization. Um, there were other people like Dave Foreman involved. Uh, um, there, um, Michael Soleil was you know, the, the head scientist figure for the group for a number of years. And I think, you know, we, we owe to them and we inherited from them that big ambitious dream of connecting lands throughout the continent. Um, it, was, it was probably a naive dream. There, uh, the dream was of course uh, shaped by, by who they were and the period of history in, in which they lived as, as all things are, um, but it, but it was, but it was a labor of love. They wanted to do this for the love of of nature, and what struck me uh, about it when I was uh, still in Mexico City in my twenties and came across the first uh, Wild Earth magazine, which was the journal that the organization used to publish back then, was you know these people care for the land and and the wildlife because it exists not because of the services it provides to humans. That's, that's not uh. it. And, uh, and, you know, the more I looked around, everybody was talking about sustainable development and natural resources and all these words that seem to make sense from an economic standpoint, but they didn't make sense to me in my heart. You know, it was like, no, that tree doesn't exist for it to become lumber for me. It exists because it's a living creature and it has a right to exist. And, and, and that I think, still rings through, you know, several generations after our, our founding members, uh, mm. uh, some 30 years ago. Yeah, that's a, that's a great sentiment. I think it's often, um, you know, we tend to break things down to supply and demand and, mm -hmm. uh, economics. And sometimes it's nice to acknowledge that fact, um, as you just stated it, I think part of what's interesting about your organization is the, the scale you're working at there are some maps that are on your website that show uh, you're, you're really not thinking about um, conservation in, in certain states or um, geopolitical boundaries. You're thinking about truly about wild, wildlands networks and connectivity. Can you talk about how it's the organization is framed in that regard and your areas of work? Sure. Um, it all started out with uh, with deciding, okay, we want to conserve these vast landscapes. We recognize the boundaries um, are, are a figment of our imagination. They may have political implications, but for nature, they're, they're just not there. And, uh, and we ought to take that into account. And so um, that means f uh, the boundaries of, of a national park. That means the boundaries between states. That means the boundaries between countries. And, and so um, a first effort was made to, to envision what a huge network of lands might look like. And the first one was called the Spine of the Continent. And it brought together the mountainous regions from the Brooks Range in Alaska 
through the Canadian Rockies, the Rocky Mountains, and into the Sierra Madre Occidental in Mexico. And, and suddenly that was put out there. And at the time it was visionary, it was so crazy that when people saw the first maps suggesting a network of conserved lands in that vast landscape, they, they literally went crazy and uh, started accusing <laughs> the group of trying to uh, facilitate a land grab by the US federal government, uh, all in cahoots with uh, the United Nations and stripping <laughs> ranchers from their rights and things like that. And, you know, that, that, those original maps were kind of like, uh, we would talk about them <laughs> more quietly in certain circles at some point in, in the history of the organization. And now we're all very used to seeing big, big ambitious maps, you know, of, of what conservation might look like. And it's been, um, the spine of the continent was renamed uh, the Western Wildway for, for Wildlands Network. Uh, and we're also um, working in Eastern United States in what we call the Eastern Wildway and, uh, and in the Pacific Coast uh, in what we call the, the Pacific Wildway. Um, we haven't expanded our work yet to Baja California in Mexico, but, but that's the intent. The intent is to, to acknowledge that the landscape is one and we ought to be looking at it as a, as a whole continental system and, and addressing the issues of wildlife mobility and adaptation to climate at that big uh, scale, while also making an impact in uh, specific regions um, through our partners. Each of those follows uh, mountain ranges, essentially uh, running running north south for the most part. Is that just a function of the the ability to conserve those areas because there's more opportunity for connectivity? There, there's definitely that. Um, there's you know the truth is humans have already taken up the the best um, the best real estate out yeah. there. So, so floodplains are taken. Uh, places that can that could be turned to agriculture uh, have already been turned to agriculture or are in the process of it, uh, for the most part in the continent. And so we have to work with what is left in in some sense. But you know, we do acknowledge that there are still some some patches of grasslands, plains, etc. That uh, that uh, that make up uh, important portions for for conservation. And especially, you know, we've got different mosaics. The Eastern Wildway is not necessarily all mountainous, and um, uh, and we acknowledge that that diversity. But we certainly have to work with what's what's left there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I it's funny you say that about the maps. I remember uh, it just jogged a memory when I was a teenager. Probably I saw a map of what they were calling Cascadia at the time, uh -huh. which is yeah, Pacific uh -huh. Northwest. And I remember thinking, like, this is a crazy anarchist idea. They're trying to redraw the U.S. You know, <laughs> like, I didn't really get it at first. And um, now those kind of maps really excite me because it's uh, just a totally yeah. different way of, of looking at the landscape. And they're becoming more mainstream. And, and you know, there's, um, um, there's talk at all levels, policy, conservation, economy, about connectivity across landscapes. So now it's not so hush-hush. So so crazy, so anarchic, uh, uh, but you know, I I like to think that that we are part of the vanguard in making those things mainstream, and now we're moving into how do we actually make that dream happen? Because you know, a, a map looks looks well, it's it's fine, it's it's a nice vision, but it's that it's a vision. When you have to implement it in different landscapes, jurisdictions, and different cultures, uh, while being respectful of tribal lands, First Nations, indigenous peoples in Mexico, uh, landowners with traditions of hunting, ranching, et cetera, where you have to be respectful to the different uh, jurisdictions, uh, whether it's federal, state, municipal, et cetera. Um, different cultures in the sense, you know, that we're working in Mexico, we're working in the US, we're making inroads in Canada. Uh, and, and you just, it's, there's no cookie cutter solution to that. You just have to engage with people honestly. You have to invest in, in the culture. You have to invest in the place uh, and figure out what makes the most sense for that particular place that adds up to the whole system. Uh, and and um, I think that's where the challenge is. And I, and I like being in the, in the forefront of that exploration. I can only relate it to uh, my personal experience 
in in landscape architecture sometimes when we work on public projects you have lots of different stakeholders and lots of different groups that are that have a vested interest in whatever the project is and it's it's really exhausting Juan Carlos <laughs> and so I uh, I can't imagine doing it at an international scale you know I am really interested on that topic in your Mexican uh, Mexico America borderlands work that you've done in the past I mean that must have taught you a lot about this kind of collaboration but uh, I guess could you kind of talk about what you all were doing and and how that project has gone in the last decade, and especially in light with all the new border wall construction. Yeah, my, my work in the borderlands started out with uh, establishing for my former group what is now called the, the Northern Jaguar Reserve, which is a 23,000 hectare uh, protected area in the northernmost breeding uh, range of jaguars in the continent. Wow. And yeah, it is, it is a huge project. I, I was in charge of moving that forward uh, engaging the ranchers, buying some strategic land, uh, while also making friends with the neighbors and launching a, a, an incentives program for ranchers to to protect jaguars in their properties and and, and in a way participate with the, with the reserve. And our, our funding was coming from the U.S., so I started working a lot with groups in the U.S. and learning about the NGO culture in the U.S. and the expectation that jaguars would eventually recolonize the, the Southwest in our, particularly Arizona and New Mexico, in which some people to this day don't realize, you know, they were native species of, of the United States Southwest. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that was a huge learning experience for me in, in many ways. Not only did I learn conservation by doing it and, you know, making many mis mistakes along the way, but it also uh, immediately opened my eyes to, there's no way we can do this unless we all help each other. There was no way the reserve would happen without Mexican stakeholders. There was no way the reserve could happen without US stakeholders. Uh, it, it needed both, both elements. Uh, and you know, I was, um, uh, I was privileged enough uh, that growing up in Mexico City, I, I learned English as almost my mother tongue. And, uh, and I could facilitate a lot of the difficult conversations that needed happening and, and could, could serve as a bridge for, for, for that kind of engagement. And I realized that, you know, this, we need more of this and it is exhausting. And you know, when I started working in a bilingual environment, my brain would just hurt at the end of the day. It was like, <laughs> I can't switch, switch back and forth from English to Spanish all the time and then interpret for those who only understand uh, one of those languages all the time. Now I feel a lot more comfortable doing it because I've been doing it for 20 years almost. And, wow, yeah. uh, and it's like, yeah, I, I, I can switch and I can work on both and whatnot. But it is exhausting, and and then there's so much background that you have to interpret for every every little thing. You know, like people in Mexico are blown away by the you know the natural park system in the United States, and and they it makes it forces us to realize there's no public lands in Mexico. And when I tell that to people in the U.S., like what? There's no big public land. So how do you affect? Uh, protected areas and it's like no it's just a layer of regulation over people's lands you know whether it's communal or or private and then it's like communal what's that oh it's an ejido and then there's all sorts of conversations before you can talk about com conservation or jaguars or anything that's um, that need to happen and I think you know it just takes a lot of time and commitment to to, to be there and, and have those conversations gosh yeah that's that's a lot. I mean, I, it makes me think of a, a few things. I mean, like when you talk about the, the translating and things, I, in the past few days, I've been reading up on y'all and these terms, Mexican black bear, Mexican gray wolf. And I'm like, well, it's not a Mexican black bear. It, the black bear doesn't know it's Mexican. <laughs> it's a black bear. You know, I'm not one for, um, you know, I, I get a little bit annoyed by all of the, the, restructuring of language that's happening right now in our society but like that's one where I'm, I'm a little bit confused i'm like why are we calling it a mexican gray wolf it's a gray wolf um you know well, it is a subspecies of gray wolf and and it does have a unique uh, genetic makeup mm. so so that's uh and somebody gave it that name because at some point they were more abundant in, in mexico and uh the u.s tried to exterminate it and was struggling because uh you know um 
those those wolves were making their way across the border from the south. Uh, and so even as the, what's now the Wildlife Services under the Department of Agriculture was making good progress in their, in their books in exterminating wolves, uh, they just keep coming, kept coming back from Mexico. And mm -hmm. so I guess there's, that's part of the history. And eventually what they decided is they would also fund and support the extermination effort in Mexico. And so uh, that's when it started working. And that was the death knell for, for Mexican wolf and for grizzly in the, in the Southwest. Grizzlies used to reach um, quite far south into Mexico, into the state of Durango. And, and um, the, the carnivore campaigns of the 20th century facilitated with money from the US federal government eventually um, uh, wiped out um, grizzly bear and, and, and Mexican wolf in, in Mexico. And now, you know, our countries are collaborating. Uh, I wish they were as effective as they were in the 20th century in exterminating these species. Right. But there's, there's collaboration in, in bringing Mexican wolf back and, and, uh, and also, you know, in the other direction, uh, bringing back uh, jaguars into the U.S. In, in terms of the Mexican gray wolf, um, is that... So right now, my understanding is that they've been reintroduced to a small area in Arizona or New Mexico? Both, mostly New Mexico, but, but yeah, both. And I mean, the co connectivity for that species seems like a very, very tall order, but I guess the hope would be that they would be able to interbreed with the more northern gray wolves at some point and establish some genetic diversity. Is that the goal? Um, depends on who you ask. The The goal for conservationists is definitely that. And, and the same way south. There's been reintroductions in Mexico since 2011. I was involved in that project at, at the time uh, with reintroducing wolves into the state of Sonora, which didn't go that well. Mm. And since then, efforts moved to Chihuahua and have been more successful. I'm no longer involved with that, but you know, I'd like to keep tabs on what's going on with Mexican wolves here. And the intent is to, to connect the, uh, that population to recovery efforts in the US. And like you mentioned, allowing wolves to, uh, to connect to wolves um, uh, farther north. The hypothesis is that there was always some sharing of genetic material, uh, but not so much that that it, it wouldn't allow for the Mexican wolf subspecies to to retain its its distinctiveness. Mm. The the problem is that the the recovery plan as drafted by the Fish and Wildlife Service states that that wolves can't leave a specific area. And if they go beyond that, uh, they have to be captured and brought back or captured and taken back into captivity, something like that. And so, um, so uh, in terms of the landscape, the landscape is not necessarily uh, the obstacle. Wolves ha can travel immense distances and they can find each other in a landscape where you'd have trouble finding an elephant. <laughs> and they're like, oh yeah, they phone in each other through their, through their senses. And, um, and um, I guess it's just, you know, that we have placed too many political and infrastructure barriers for them to, to connect uh, with each other. And until we bring those down, they're going to be restricted to that area. Have you read uh, Dan Flores's Coyote America? I have not, but it sounds interesting. <laughs> I think you would love it. It's, um, well, obviously it's about coyotes, but uh, it's, it's a really interesting historical account of their extirpation and how they've survived. And, and he draws some comparisons in why wolves were not able to survive as well, all the attempts at, uh, you know, extirpation. Uh, maybe I'll send you a copy. It's, I've, got a, I've got an extra one. But, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He's, he's great. I think you'll really enjoy. Um, in terms of your, your work in the Borderlands region, I was reading about this area that I've heard of, but I've never visited, the Sky Islands. Mm -hmm. Could you describe that landscape and its importance in, uh, in biological diversity? Sure. It's hugely important, uh, especially for the United States. It has some of the greatest uh, diversity of species in the whole continental United States. It is a landscape that's uh, defined by 
by the Sky Islands, which are these mountain ranges that rise over a sea of grass and desert. Uh, and are called that because in ecological terms, they serve somewhat as islands in that some species have their own um, evolution going on on those islands, isolated from the mountain range you know, across a plain. And so uh, you, that creates a lot of diversity. Uh, and it also presents a challenge for some species uh, moving along the landscape. And you, you have jaguars that are sort of forced to walk through grasslands, which is definitely not their natural habitat, to reach another, um, to reach another, uh, another mountain range. And, and, and so the better connected these mountain ranges are, the, the likelier it is that, that the species in them will survive. But um, the landscape is shared by four states, Arizona, New Mexico, Sonora, and Chihuahua. Most of it lies on the, on the Mexican side. And, um, uh, but it, in its location means it has um, what are called biotic influences, which means basically you know, what kind of animals and plants might live there. Um, biotic influences from the tropics uh, that are merged with desert uh, influences from the Chihuahuan and Sonoran desert. The Great Plains has an influence in there, as does the, the, the Rocky Mountains. And so species from the Rocky Mountains and the tropics basically meet at, the, at this crucible of biodiversity, which is uh, one of the few places in the world where you can find uh, black bears, bald eagles and jaguars and ocelots coexisting <laughs> wow yeah just from a aerial view it's like a gradient where you got the southern tip of the rockies there in northern new mexico and then the northern tip of the sierra madre occidental and then there's mm -hmm. just dots of of mountains right in between it's it's uh, a very literal you can kind of see it from the air exactly what you're talking okay. about and um such a fascinating place. What kind of work have you done there in terms of conservation? Um, uh, the work I've done there is, is multiple. The, the Northern Jaguar Reserve I was referencing a minute ago is in, uh, on the edge of the Sky Islands. Oh. Uh, and it's the source uh, from where the jaguars that populate the Sky Islands come from. Uh, and so um, that was that was my initial work there. I also worked in grasslands conservation right along the border, in a project um, that involved uh, the Nature Conservancy and and other Mexican partners, um, uh, in a joint watershed, a shared watershed, which is called the San Pedro. Um, I'm, and then I moved on to work on on a Mexican highway, which is called Highway Two that basically bisects the Sky Islands and represents a barrier for wildlife to move north north and south and eventually to adapt to, to climate change. And so we've done a lot of work there trying to get the Mexican authorities to build wildlife crossings uh, along that highway. We support private landowners that want to certify their lands as private protected areas. Um, we're also um, uh, looking at what's what's going on with ocelots in the region since um, scientists recently determined that that's also the northernmost breeding habitat for for ocelots, which also occasionally make it uh, north across the border. And and our organization is of course also involved in the the, the in trying to stop the the construction of the border wall and mitigate it, its impacts. Um, as it basically cuts the Sky Islands in, in two in that part of the, the, the border and, and has a huge impact on, uh, on species, uh, all kinds of species, even abundant ones. And um, it certainly um, reduces the possibility that jaguars and ocelots can, can make a comeback in, into the United States. And for Mexico, it also reduces the possibility for for wolves and and uh, and black bears to be um, genetically enriched by individuals coming in from the United States, where they are more abundant. So, in terms of that that uh, the wall bisecting the Sky Islands, I mean, it's essentially that impermeable tall steel wall that you see, right? That, that is correct, and uh, it's made up of what they call bollards, which are these uh, concrete-filled iron tubes 
that are uh, that are spaced about four four inches away from each other, uh, which means nothing with a skull bigger than four inches can actually go through um, through that wall. Have you seen so during the Trump administration, primarily, I believe somewhere between four and five hundred miles of of this fence were erected since then. Uh, and, and obviously there were portions existing before that. Since then, though, have you noticed, have you been able to measure the impact biologically versus the impact socially? And what I mean is how it's affecting animal movement versus how it's weather or how it's affected human movement? Um, it has it has facilitated human movement and it has impeded um, uh, animal movement. Facilitated? facilitated human movement yes and uh people don't seem to realize that part of what they call the wall is that what they call the wall is actually a series of infrastructures along the border so there's the there's the actual barrier but there's also very wide dirt roads that were made all along the border for uh, border patrol vehicles to service the wall or to patrol the wall and so a lot of uh, many, many miles of roads were built and others were widened uh, to, to ex- extend this, um, this operation. There's other things like big, huge uh, night lights that disturb uh, animals that fly at night like bats and, and migrate. Um, there's also um, helipads that bring noise and pollution to areas where, where there's really no reason to have them except you know the wall, whatever that means. And so, but going back to those dirt roads, the 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 first people who realized, you know, we've got a fancy new road in this wild area were, of course, the smugglers. And so, uh, smuggling activity has increased uh, b- because of the because of the infrastructure that was built there. And people might say, well, how are they using the road if if there's a wall there? Uh, it's a binational operation. Roads uh, vehicles can can drive in from the U.S. side, and there's also constant breaches in the in the wall. They're, they're, they are constantly breaching the wall. Uh, all kinds of people, you know, people who are desperate and climbing and trying to get across, and a lot of them end up injured and even dying in the attempt. And yeah. um, and there's also you know. Uh, uh, criminal interests trying to get across, and they've got the resources to to cut big holes in that thing and and move across. and And uh, it it certainly hasn't stopped uh, people. It may have channeled a bunch of people to the gaps that are left, which are some of the most dangerous places for people to cross because they're the the most isolated and and waterless landscapes you can't imagine. Mm. And, and you know the 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 human rights impact of forcing somebody who's already making the the very hard decision of li- leaving their ho- their homeland because they can't make a living there and they have to go across you know not an immigration checkpoint where they can be received as refugees you know they they know they are forced into the harshest landscape ever and see if they can make it alive and um and if they get caught you know they're sent back and so the cycle starts again because you know chances are they'll just try again when you work with those landowners on both sides of the border of which there are many and, and folks who own massive pieces of land directly on the border on both sides what is your impression um, impression, I guess, with the, the U.S. landowners versus the Mexican landowners and how they feel about the wall? Interestingly enough, many of the U.S. landowners uh, I've had a chance to, to talk with uh, oppose the wall, oppose the, the, the waving of eminent domain to take over their lands and build federal infrastructure. You know, there, there is, of course, uh, uh, a sense of uh, their freedom and their land and their rights being uh, taken away from them. Um, there is a sense for those of them who've been living in the area for generations that this is useless. They've had good working relationships with, with ranchers across the board. They often share uh, ranch hands with cowboys who would you know, um, jump on their horse and, and help with the cows on one side and one ranch uh, 
during a week and then they go back and, and do the same work in, in, in their side. And, uh, and there's a shortage of cowboys in, in, in the region. Uh, and so getting, um, getting help from Mexican ranchers used to be uh, a, a, a tradition that's no, longer, that, that's no longer happening. There's the diversion of waterways. A lot of creeks um, called arroyos in the, in the region uh, are being diverted, obstructed, polluted by, by the infrastructure. And ranchers resent that because the, that's the water that provides for, for their cattle. Uh, and so, you know, they, they've had a long peaceful tradition of being good neighbors and suddenly they're forced into this uh, paranoia of it's, it's all narcos and, and, and violent immigrants here, which um, uh, those things do happen. I don't want to uh, understate that those things do happen, but they're not happening at the scale that would merit destroying the landscape, destroying uh, nature in, in both countries, uh, impacting the rights of, of, of citizens of both countries, um, having a, an overarching uh, waiver that basically means, you know, the Endangered Species Act has no say in the border world. The Clean mm. Air Act has no say in the border. The Clean Waters Act has no say in the border. The Any indigenous uh, uh, lands protection act has no say in the border. Everything can be waived so that the, the border wall and its associated infrastructure can be built. And, and that means, you know, it's basically a, a lawless land, you know, a, a single, uh, um, uh, appointed official in the in the, <laughs> in, in the U.S. government, nobody voted for that person, can make all the decisions about what happens with that huge landscape, and uh, it's a constitutional disgrace, and and it's an impact on the landscape. And people seem to understand that. Of course, there are others who are, you know more inclined to say, yes, this is what we need and we'll put the land and we'll build the wall. Uh, but my experience is they're not a majority. Um, they're, they're not a majority of the people. And yeah. they don't, it doesn't look like, um, uh, like people in the local communities uh, accept the wall at all. I'm from Texas and most of the people that I interact, there's maybe some, uh, some bias on just the people that I associate with but most of the texans that i know were not in support of of you know building more of the wall just from even just from an economical standpoint a lot of those people weren't concerned with the environmental impacts but it did feel like a huge um discrepancy money (laughs) what's that it's a waste of money (laughs) oh absolutely but it did feel like there was um a lack of of representation um and that it was just it's been such an environmental disaster, but it's also, as you said, failed to accomplish um, what it's set out to do in terms of, of stopping illegal immigration into the U.S. largely. Uh, it seems that a lot of the people that are in support of it are people who don't interact with that landscape, who who don't know any people from Mexico, who are very geographically and mentally uh, distanced from this issue. Whose lands are not being taken away through eminent domain to build the border yeah. wall, but yeah. you know, uh, there's been surveys of people in Montana who are asked like, "How would you feel about a, a border wall of this kind being put here in uh, and between the border of Canada uh, and Montana?" Uh, and they go crazy. No, why would we have that? It would destroy the landscape. The grizzlies wouldn't be able to go back and forth. The wolverines, the elk, the moose, etc. It's like. Well, that's exactly what's going on at the Mexican border. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, it's the same people who are supportive of, of the border wall. And I guess, you know, that goes back to the issues of, uh, you know, the racial reckoning going on in the, in the, in the United States. And, and we're seeing a, a lot of those issues are tainted by, um, by what's honestly white supremacy. Okay. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, there, there is... There is an understanding that the border with Mexico is the uncomfortable neighbor because uh, there is no recognition of the cultural exchange. There is no recognition of the economic exchange, which is huge. There is only a recognition of the bad sides. So suddenly every brown guy coming from Mexico is a criminal. And regardless of the contribution to culture, to economy, to livelihoods, to families in the United States. 
that's that's simply not acknowledged. It's a troublesome border. There are a bunch of brown people who who are only bringing crime into our country, and we ought to be putting a wall in between them. Whereas, you know, uh, that's just not the reality. Uh, the reality is a lot more complex. There's a. I'm not saying there's there's no crime going across the border. Uh, there's definitely uh, crime going across the border. It goes both ways. The United States has a, a huge. Um, influence on the amount of guns that come into Mexico and feed the violence that's going on in Mexico. And, and of course, the United States is buying all the drugs that, that, uh, that come from Mexico. And nobody's addressing the issue. The issue is not the, the, the consumer in the United States um, uh, who's, who's doing drugs, because the assumption is it's some white person that needs help. The issue is the brown guy who's bringing the drugs, and that person is the problem, and it has, that's the person that needs to be addressed. And it basically is a lack of imagination and a lack of understanding from, from U.S. leadership and, um, and a lack of will of a lot of the, the American public to, to understand the issue in depth. As usual, the, the problem comes from the inside and not from the perceived uh, enemy or the perceived problem. I think... You know, it, a lot of this comes back to the American media and the um, the xenophobia that has been pushed for since I've been born. It was either against uh, against Mexico, against the Middle East, and it is so unfortunate that it completely bulldozes this environmental disaster that is yep. the border wall. Um, I, I do want to think about and not to. Um, disregard what you're saying i'm just i'm so interested in the the species the effect that the wall has had on the on the the animal life i'm wondering have you been able to measure um or is it going to take longer have you been able to measure the effect on biological diversity and and the um ability for those species to move in that landscape um it is challenging to say the least. The border wall, as, as somebody in our science staff put it <laughs> the other day, it, it was not designed as an experiment, as a scientific experiment. <laughs> no, nobody gave any uh, thought in advance of facilitating the science on the border wall. So uh, it's it's very difficult. Scientists are, are very uh, thorough about these things. And so they would want to have a control site where they can monitor and they want to know the before and after before they can say, you know, this is the real impact and we've measured it and it comes out in a peer reviewed paper. Uh, we have uh, we have made some progress. Uh, we've we've mapped the border wall in, uh, in uh, Arizona and New Mexico to an extent that nobody else has at a level of detail that nobody else has. Uh, we've, uh, we've been able to set camera traps in a particular spot in the San Bernardino National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which is right on the border, as the border wall was being constructed. And so some of the first pictures that we got in, in our survey were you know, a lot of animals moving uh, mostly in one direction, whether north or south, and, and that was it. You wouldn't see them again, um, or at least you wouldn't be able to recognize them in, in a short period of time. Uh, and then when the when the border wall eventually closed, uh, it was evident that the animals were going back and forth in front of the cameras because they would reach the border wall and then they would have to go back and then they would try again and have to go back. They would try again and have to go back. So so we know we are aware that these things are going on. We've seen them anecdotally, anecdotally happen. Uh, as in, we've seen we, we've been able to record video and pictures of the animals at the wall and being. Uh, obstructed. Um, we've seen the impact it's had on waterways uh, and uh, facilitated flooding in Nogales a few years ago. It, it has uh, it has reshaped some of the waterways in in the region with impacts on pollution, which have have impacts on on fish and whatnot. And so we've we know these environmental impacts are there. Measuring it when you have to be out there. Uh, on the on the ground, weather conditions are not helping. Border patrol often harasses researchers and, and advocates in mm. that 
on that side of the border. On the south side of the border, you have to know the landowners, you have to speak the language, um, you have to make some connections before you can even start working. And, and even then, but the truth is there is a lot of smuggling of, of drugs going on. And so you don't want to end up in the crossfires between, you know, uh, yeah. between uh, somebody trying to, to get something there. You don't want to cross their path. So, so you have to be careful about that. With all those challenges in mind, it, it's really hard to design a robust experiment before and after the border wall. I'm but, sure. even, you know, we've been able to document stuff that's that, that, you know, shows that the the wall is having the impact we'd expect it to have. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, you can just look at the thing and and understand, but I, I just wondered about that work. But it makes sense that it would be immensely challenging due to the, the issues that you just said. One thing, you know, I, I look at it and I go, oh, that must be affecting uh, mammals and, and fauna on the ground. But at least the birds and the butterflies and the bats can still do their <laughs> thing. But it sounds like that's an issue as well. It is an issue. There's uh, pygmy owls in, in Arizona who have a flight pattern where they drop from trees and gradually they almost hit the ground and then they gradually glide upwards till they oh, cool. reach the next tree. And so their flight is never X number of, of yards in length, uh, uh, which means, you know, they never actually reach X height. Those pygmy owls, which have populations in the U.S. and Mexico, are totally unable to to cross the 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 border wall you you'd assume it being birds they would but it takes you know very <laughs> very dedicated ornithologists to point out that nope these guys just can't make it through not every bird will be able to make it through and which is consistent with what we with what we find in roads you know we find in roads a lot of owls that are hit uh, and not just um, not just buzzards, which you'd expect as as they eat roadkill, uh, but we see a lot of owls hit on roads, which means that some birds just fly low. They that's what they do. That's their their behavior. Yeah. And then there's bats, uh, which I was just saying, with this light infrastructure, these huge spotlights, uh, they they create um, they disturb their patterns and their perception while migrating. And, and prey, I would assume. And their prey, exactly. So uh, has somebody measured the impact on them? Not necessarily at the border wall, but we know these things happen. And, and it, it stands to reason that, that bats are impacted by, by border walls despite their capacity to fly. Before we move on, um, what would be your hope? And, and do you see a future where the border wall is partially or large or entirely deconstructed um, for for the benefit of wildlife. Yes, uh, and it's important for us to, to be able to imagine such futures uh, because it, it, it's only by imagining them that we give the first step towards actually building those futures. So yes, I definitely imagine a future in which uh, probably my daughter's generation or your soon to come child's generation will will pick up a bulldozer and and tear the whole damn thing down <laughs> i hope you're right brother well i know you're working in other places I, I thought that was a really important subject and i was very curious about it so thank you for for that um i know you're working in a lot of other places and you have this new role within the organization where you're going to be imagining all sorts of of new work uh, what are you excited about right now about some of your other projects going on? <laughs> wow. Um, Wildlands Network has projects, like I mentioned, in the east, the west, from Cascadia to uh, <laughs> Red Wolf lands in, in North Carolina. We've got exciting things happening in Virginia, California, uh, uh, Colorado just just uh, passed the bill to, to fund um, wildlife crossings. Um, it's, it's, these things are happening throughout the whole uh, US landscape. Same in, in Mexico, there's a huge national push to, to prohibit uh, mining in natural protected areas. We're part of the, uh, of the technical team informing, um, informing that campaign. Um, we've got um, the possibility to designate new conservation lands in the state of Sonora in Mexico, interest in, in new national monuments in California. There's, there's things going on all over the place. And what really, really excites me about my new role is that um, we get to explore 
how do we do all this uh, uh, while at the same time staying true to both our commitment to the communities and the locations where we work in and our vision of it's a single continent and it's the same if it's Cascadia or the Sierra Madre or, uh, or the Adirondacks. We just want uh, nature to thrive. We want it to thrive at a, at a huge scale. And, and we can't do it in the traditional way. We can't do it just, you know, um, uh, being the, the, the typical US-centric organization. That's just not going to work. We have to redefine ourselves. And we're in the process of doing that. And that's internally very, very interesting. How do we define ourselves as a continental organization? We've got board members in Canada. We've got board members in Mexico. We've got staff in Mexico. And, and, uh, and we might soon have some staff in Canada. Um, that's a good start. But that doesn't make us continental. So we have to have an internal cultural shift. You know, how, what does it actually mean that, that we're all emotionally vested in the health and future of, of North America as a, as a landscape and not just one portion of it? And, and, and doing so while, I, again, being honest with our local partners, you know, that we're going to make an investment in, 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 uh, in effort and we're going to bring funds to this region in some way or another, uh, that is a huge challenge, um, which I, I am thrilled by embracing and having a team that wants to embrace it and our executive director is all for it. Like, yes, let's do this. And we've been hiring bilingual staff in our central offices. And, and we're thinking about how do we work in French? We, because that's kind of the area in, in, in Canada we're, we're looking forward to working. And so it's like, uh, how how do we reinvent ourselves as, as an organization that speaks at least three languages that can work effectively with, with tribes in a way that, that honors that, that they've been stewarding this land, you know, while also being true to the fact that we, we were born out of the necessity to protect wildlife. Uh, and, uh, and not all those things can fit perfectly in, in a tidy little box where you say, oh, yeah, native peoples and hunters and anglers and wildlife and, and road infrastructure. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way. It's messy and it's going to be messy for a, for a long while. And how do we embrace the messiness and, 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 and not only operate in it, but learn to thrive in it? I think that's the challenge. I'm, I'm very excited about being part of this challenge. I'm very excited that the organization is embracing, you know, multinational leadership. Uh, and, uh, and I want to see more of that. And, I, and I'd like to see more organizations doing it uh, as, in, in a manner that's as committed as, as ours is. And, and I want to see others doing it even better so that we can learn from them. So uh, that's, that's what I think is, is exciting because our, our vision is so huge. There's no way a single generation or a single group can accomplish it. There's no right. single answer to it. And so rather than than obsess about what's the model that's going to work and embrace the multiplicity of answers and solutions and be able to work with them in an honest manner uh uh i think that's that's the the crazy part of the exciting part <laughs> yeah you're taking on such a huge challenge and it is it is exciting though to get to kind of code switch and to to be a generalist in that way and work with all those different interests. I think, you know, I, I talk a lot about um, localism and bioregionalism, and but then I also want to see those maps that look at, you know, large international scale wildlife corridors. Uh, I love switching in and out of those scales, thinking about all the different elements that come together, the economics, the politics, the biology, the anthropology, involved in this kind of work but it can it can be a little bit maddening i'm sure when you're trying to get something done it it is maddening and i think we all stumble trying to to get it right because i don't think there's there's a single answer uh the truth of the matter is our organization like many organizations like many you know like your nation was was established by a small group of white men 
who were very idealistic. They had the privilege of being in a position where they could dream about a vast, huge future. It's it's not all bad about that, you know. We uh, in my ideal world, everybody enjoys that privilege of of, of inventing a huge utopia, uh-huh. uh, and that's great. But it also means that that we have to be honest and acknowledge that's our origin. They were they were kind enough and they were open enough to embrace that multiplicity from the start, and so the change that has come about in the organization is noticeable. There's 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 more women in our organization than ever before. All all of them, I'd say most of them in leadership positions, uh, and you know that's not what we looked like 30 years ago. There's there's a, a team that includes six people from Mexico. That's not what the team looked like uh, in its origins. And so we are learning how to do this this uh, this multiplicity. And I was just listening to um, to Adrian Marie Brown. Uh, on a podcast, she is a, a social organizer, a community organizer, social organizer who deals with uh, social justice issues, hmm. and and she was talking about you know the fractal concept, the the concept that um, the the part is a reflection of the whole, and the values that you see in the part as they multiply and make the whole. Uh, replicate and become something that's 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 in essence the same and i think that's where the challenge is you know how do we make the parts our our local engagements honest and and about wildlife and and acknowledging the intrinsic value of wildlife and then how do you replicate that at at scale so that you can do the same at a continent and then look at the whole continent being uh being stewarded with with honesty with uh love for wildlife with love for community how do you do that i don't think anybody has the answer but i'm i'm having a blast (laughs) at least at exploring (laughs) well i think you guys have a really great approach and um i hope that the values that you're talking about result in uh overall you know a benefit greater benefit to the people and the and the ecological communities involved so I'm really excited about your work, man. I'm. Uh, I would love to to get involved more involved with you all if you have any opportunities, um, and you know even just whether we want to follow up again and in a year once you've had a chance to settle into your new role. Um, yeah. But I, I also want to compliment your impeccable English because if we did this in Spanish, it wouldn't have been half the conversation. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I've been having a lot of practice over the last few years. <laughs> Well, it's exciting to me because I want to speak to people from, you know, different backgrounds and uh, and working in different parts of the world, but I'm limited by speaking mostly just this one language. (laughs) Um, Well, you're about to become a father. Take that as an opportunity to uh, improve yourself and and make a a role model for for your child, Uh, um, son or daughter. I'm not sure what you guys are expecting. Uh, your son uh think about how great it would be if he were to grow up being bilingual and how can you join him on that journey and learn a language together that's not the 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 language at home that that could be you know a a good way to start yeah (laughs) i speak a little bit of spanish but it's just i haven't had an opportunity to be conversational and so Mm -hmm. it's it's very basic but one thing i'm excited about is we live in a community that has a, a large Mexican population here. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping that we can find, you know, opportunities for him to, to speak Spanish, uh, whether it's in school or childcare or what have you. Awesome. Awesome. I, I hope you do. I think we need more, more bilingual, multicultural people. It, it helps uh, break the barriers and realize, you know, we all, really care about this land we all care about wildlife and and we've got so much more in common than we have uh, what sets us apart and um and that's that's a place to start with well juan carlos uh if people wanted to learn more or support your organization where where do you want to send them uh, i'm our website is a good start wildlandsnetwork.org um, they can find it in English, Spanish, and French, and uh, they, 
um, there's a donate button there. Uh, we we love getting new donors at any level. So if people are just interested in in supporting our continental project, uh, that that is great. They can also say I I'm really excited about jaguars. I want to support that, or I'm in Cascadia. I want to do that, or Red Wolves is my thing, and I want to support Red Wolves. Uh, well, you can uh, actually tailor your donation to go toward a, sp a specific cause. There's ways of doing that if you if you talk to our development staff for sure. Cool. <laughs> but but yeah, you know you 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 can do that if if your heart is is more locally inclined. Uh, um, there's a good chance we're working in a region that that's important to you, and um, and if you want to share the the big continental vision, well, thank you. <laughs> well, I'll be supporting you all, and um, yeah, man, let's stay in touch. This was fun. Absolutely. Yes, it was it was a delight. And I hope we get a chance to repeat in a year, like you said. And I, I wish you all the best with uh, the new member of the family that's coming these <laughs> next few days. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. It, it's going to be a huge trip. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm going to send you a copy of that book I mentioned. So um, I'll ask for your address after we log off. <laughs> oh, thank you. Sorry. All right. Thanks, man. Ooh, Talk soon. Great meeting you. Bye-bye.